0: Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, brought to you by Best's Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, the broadcast about timely and important legal issues affecting the insurance industry. I'm John Zuba, editor of Best's Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Joining me is Brendan Noonan from our communications team. We're pleased to have with us today attorney Jack Lux and Tony Patrillo from the law firm of Lux, Santanello, Perez, Patrillo Golden Jones in Florida. Jack Lux is a founding partner of the firm and has over 20 years of trial litigation experience. He handles premises liability and negligent security matters and has spoken nationally on the subject. The firm has seven offices statewide in Florida, and Jack resides in the firm's Fort Lauderdale location. Tony Petrillo is the firm's Tampa partner and a member of the firm's complex trial team. He has more than 19 years of trial experience, and his practice areas include premises liability, negligent security, general liability, and construction liability matters. Overall, the firm was recognized as a 2009 and 2008 go-to law firm specifically for its handling of premises liability litigation matters, and we want to thank both attorneys very much for joining us today. The Rand Institute claims that since 1998, there have been more than 60 terrorist attacks against shopping centers worldwide. In a white paper on 2008 liability trends available from the Insurance Information Institute, the authors report there is a heightened standard of care imposed on owners by courts and juries. Even when diligent security measures are undertaken, courts and juries have held companies responsible for third-party criminal acts. This continues to be an area of concern, and Brendan Noonan will lead off today with our first question. Uh, Jack, how do you defend a negligent security claim where the incident occurred in a high crime area and the insured had little to no security in place?
1: Sure. Frequently we get cases such as this where we represent property owners, some have mall shopping centers or convenience stores or apartment complexes that are in high crime areas and yet they don't retain any type of security personnel or have any appreciable security presence when we try cases like this there's a threshold issue that juries have to get over juries conceptually find it confusing that a property owner could be liable for the acts of a third party however It doesn't take long in these types of cases to overcome that hurdle for a plaintiff lawyer. Plaintiffs will introduce police reports and incident reports in high crime areas that frequently demonstrate as much as three or more felonies per week at these types of locations. And they are presented in, obviously, a pile of documents. The jury sees that, and they become shocked or enraged. And when there's situations where there's no security presence, it becomes a concern for the defendant, premise owner, or occupier. However, having said that, a lot of clients are concerned and thinking that all is lost in these types of situations. But as a general premise, juries never feel that premise owners do enough to protect them family members or loved ones. So even when you have a security presence, it is not unusual for a jury to conclude it's unreasonable or inadequate. So once the plaintiff gets over demonstrating that an incident is foreseeable, and obviously in a high crime area, it's certainly foreseeable, they have to prove that the security was unreasonable or inadequate. So as indicated, even where there's a security presence, Claimers can frequently prevail on that. So the buyer of last resort, although, is usually the most persuasive argument, and that is the proximate cause element of these claims or the preventability or deterability. So in these types of cases, there's little to no security and high crime, the defense, and a, frequently a winner is to argue that the incident was not preventable or deterrable. And that's most effectively done through cross-examining, to security experts you demonstrate through the expert what this quote-unquote security plan is such that the property would have had reasonable and adequate security and once you establish that to the expert you could demonstrate to the jury that the incident that the plaintiff is suing over more likely than that would have occurred anyway even if the security was reasonable and adequate so in summary it's an argument cross-examining the plaintiff's expert, demonstrating that even if there was a security presence, such as personnel, lights, CCTV cameras, things such as that, the incident still would have occurred, and therefore the plaintiff does not prevail because they didn't establish the approximate cause or preventability aspect of the claim.
0: Jack, what legal duties does a possessor of a premise owe to customers, visitors, or employees?
1: Generally, in a security negligence claim, they have absolutely no duty at all. The duty does not arise until the plaintiff can prove that the incident was legally foreseeable. The problem is that in most jurisdictions, it's a very liberal definition that the courts impose, and it's very easy for a plaintiff to establish a duty on the part of the defendant. All they have to do is show that there is some criminal history at the property. For example, in many jurisdictions, the plaintiff has to show that there's a history of part one felonies. And the courts conclude that part one felonies are considered to be similar crimes to the felony that is being presented in the case. For example, if it's a murder case, if there's a history of one to three part one felonies in three to five years prior to the incident at the property, the courts will determine as a matter of law that the incident was foreseeable. Part one felonies range from breaking and entering into automobiles, auto theft, battery, strong-arm robbery, robbery, sexual assault, and murder. So once that is established, then the property owner, as a matter of law, has a duty to provide reasonable and adequate security, which is the second element of proof for a plaintiff. And that is a jury question to determine based upon the circumstances, and that is the criminal history of the property did the defendant do enough to provide reasonable and adequate
0: security? Okay, Tony, what type of arguments can sway a jury toward a defendant in a negligent security action despite the existence of a sympathetic plaintiff?
2: Well, that's a great question, John, because, you know, in these cases, you can have a brutal rape, a murder, and, and, you know, a death. You can have a lot of sympathy in these cases. So the first thing any lawyer wants to do when you have a sympathetic plaintiff is to deal with it right away in jury selection. Get the jurors on board with the concept that liability comes before damages, and they'll be instructed to follow the facts and the law and are not to be swayed by sympathy. I like to say in my cases to them, you know, decide this case with your head, not with your heart. But secondly, I think it's important to stress that even in spite of excellent security, crime still happens. I mean, not, not all crimes can be prevented all of the time. I like to use the examples of the attempted assassinations of Pope John Paul II and Ronald Reagan you know, in spite of the best security available, these individuals still got shot. This lets you argue you know, all of the good security measures that are actually in place at your facility, at your shopping center, or wherever. A shopping center, for example, or a mall, it can't be a Fort Knox. You can't have an armed guard at the end of every aisle, and you can't do a criminal background check on every customer. You can only do what's reasonable, and even then, some crime still will happen. That's really just a fact of life. Thirdly, you know, but along those lines also, and Jack mentioned this too, is the concept of deterrability. Jurors really relate to this. Some criminals just can't be deterred. You know, they just might be so sick or deranged that despite the very high chance of actually getting caught, they still commit the crime. Bank robbers are a good example of, you know, desperate men doing desperate things in spite of high security. A criminal profile or a similar type of expert can help you with that and argue that the, the assailant simply would not have been deterred by any means. Finally, another good argument is when you have the foreseeability issue you've got to deal with, it may be advantageous, depending on what the crime grids show, to make some statistical arguments about the unlikelihood of the crime given the number of customers or transactions versus the number of crimes. This is particularly helpful if you have a very large store that does a lot of business. You can take some number crunching with the amount of transactions per day versus the actual number of crimes over a period of time. And then you can make the argument that statistically you're actually safer in our client's store than on the streets of your own city. So those are some of the things that we we like to do.
0: Okay, well, Tony, based on that then, what types of measures are considered reasonable to prevent or deter attacks, specifically at commercial shopping centers?
2: Well, you know, ultimately what's reasonable is going to be a jury question. That's not something you're going to get out on summary judgment and the judge is going to make a decision for you. So the jury... Has to make that call. And the dilemma that a defendant faces in a negligent security case is that it's easy to argue that just one extra thing that you didn't do would have prevented this particular crime. For example, if you've only had one more security guard, then the crime wouldn't have happened. You know, it's not a bad idea to hire a consultant because the degree of security that's needed is going to be commensurate with the crime risk. It depends on the size of the property, the type of the business what the makeup of the neighborhood is, the amount and the types of crimes in the area. You know, clearly lighting is a big issue. Cameras, guards, armed versus non-armed, uniformed versus not uniformed, whether you have an off duty police officer there, whether they're patrolling, having a patrol car right on the property, training employees to actually spot potential crimes, report it, and how they actually respond to the crimes are all very big, you know, hotly litigated issues. You know, it also depends on timing. You know, what's good security on a Sunday morning might not be the same amount of security or the same type of uh, security that's required on a Friday night. So you know, These days, at a minimum for most shopping centers, you know, I think you need to have adequate lighting. You need to have a reasonable security presence, an employee training system in place, and policies and procedures in place to deal with you know, threats and actual incidents.
0: Jack, what are some of the common defenses used against a negligent security claim, and, and what is pertinent to establishing a foreseeability?
1: Well, Brendan, I'll take the second part of the question first. As I mentioned previously, foreseeability is the first element that the plaintiff must prove in order to establish a duty to provide reasonable and adequate security. And they do so by obtaining police reports for incidents occurring. Uh, incidents, I mean, By incidents, I mean part one, felonies occurring at the property, or within a one-mile radius. The preference for a plaintiff attorney is to show as much violent crime against person as possible. However, that is not essential to establish foreseeability, as I indicated earlier. They merely have to show a history of Part 1 felonies, which include property crimes, such as breaking and entering into automobiles and auto theft. What's important to know here is that a property owner is charged with not the knowledge of these incidents occurring. The plaintiff doesn't have to show that the property owner or the manager of the property had actual knowledge of the incidents, and that is that they were specifically brought to their attention. The courts will impose constructive knowledge on the part of a property owner to be aware of the crime at their property. Therefore, it is essential, and we tell our clients this, it's essential that they have some sort of relationship with local law enforcement And they have a history of obtaining police reports and grid reports going back at least five years so that if things aren't brought directly to their attention by victims of crime at the property or perhaps by their security department, they will know each and everything that's been reported to the police through police reports. Now, some of the common defenses in these cases, one one is blaming the bad man or third-party fault in many jurisdictions. The courts do not allow defense lawyers in inadequate security cases to either put the assailant on the verdict form or bring the assailant in as a party. However, even in those jurisdictions, there are ways to creatively and effectively blame the assailant throughout the course of the case and in closing argument without specifically advising the jury that they're permitted to assess fault against the assailant. Second argument that we frequently make is through our expert is that while there may be legal foreseeability at the property through a criminal history, that the specific incident occurred was not foreseeable. For example, where there's an absence of evidence that the assailant did anything suspicious before encountering the victim, it is a an effective argument to suggest that even if security had been present, they would not have perceived a problem until it was too late. So While legal foreseeability might not be defensible, specific foreseeability, focusing on the facts of the incident, can be an effective defense. Where it's available, another defense is that the security was reasonable and adequate under the circumstances, and the circumstances are defined by the criminal history of the property. So where you have any type of security presence, you need to emphasize it on a regular basis in front of the jury. For example, Tony mentioned security guards, armed versus unarmed, police presence, vehicles. Nowadays, segways are frequently used, bicycles. Sometimes you have security presence on the roof, vehicles with flashing lights. Uh, the, the key is to focus on whatever the property owner has utilized to create visibility so that the property owner has done his best to deter criminals that are deterrable. As we mentioned earlier, frequently the best argument is that the assailant likely was not to deterrable, and certainly the plaintiff can't prove otherwise. One effective saying that we frequently use with regard to reasonable and adequate security defenses is, is that you don't know what you prevent. You only know what you didn't prevent. So that whereas there may be 10 incidents occurring a year on property, 50 may have, been, may have been prevented. And that seems to be something that the juries dig their teeth into in favor of defendants in these types of cases. Finally, As we've mentioned earlier, frequently the best defense is that the incident still would have occurred even if additional security was in place. There's no duty to guarantee safety of people on the property. Despite the presence of reasonable and adequate security, incidents are still going to occur. And you say to the jury, for all you know, this incident would have occurred even if there was additional security. When security experts testify what they think would be reasonable and adequate at a property, as a defense lawyer you turn around and ask them, well, how many of these incidents that occurred last year would not have occurred if your program was in effect? And by and large, the experts will say, I don't know, I can't tell you. Or less, I don't know how many fewer would have occurred. So once they make that type of a statement on the record, you then argue that how do they know that the incident being sued on wasn't one that would have occurred anyway again, an effective argument that frequently helps us prevail in these types of cases.
0: Okay, and Tony, what types of experts are useful in negligent security actions, and what are the potential pitfalls in calling a security expert at trial?
2: Whether we actually call a security expert at trial, it really depends on the case. But it's always helpful to hire a consulting expert early on in the case who can examine the property, look at the potential crime risks that are there, look at the security measures that are already in place, and retrieve and analyze the crime grids and and potentially some of the actual police and incident reports. And that'll help you get a real good feel for what kind of case you have and and how to defend it. They can be very helpful also in preparing for the cross-examination of the plaintiff's expert or the plaintiff's expert's deposition, even if you never call that witness at trial. The types of experts that we like to use are often, you know, ex-police chiefs or current police chiefs or ex-high-ranking law enforcement. Uh, they usually have a, a really good handle on these issues. As I mentioned earlier, the criminal profilers, um, usually former FBI, people who have worked on high-profile cases and, and opine as to the psychological factors that might motivate an assailant, can be very helpful in the appropriate case. They're clearly the, the guys and, and gals you want to use when you have issues of deterability. A major pitfall of, of calling a security expert is that the plaintiff's attorney can always come up with a few good security measures that your own expert's going to have to agree and acknowledge that he would recommend if he was advising the property owner. And so that gets, you know, allows the plaintiff to score a few points because it's always reasonable to add a little here, a little there. You can always find something. You know, also, since the plaintiff's expert will have already testified on their side of the case, when the defendant puts on its case, there's going to be some repetition, particularly on the issues of foreseeability. You know, if there's a lot of crimes, and usually there are, the plaintiff can get to go over all these you know, previous crimes, again, on your side of the case. And the more a jury hears about these other crimes, sometimes bad crimes that have, that have occurred in the store or on the block or in that neighborhood, the easier it is to find that more security was needed. That's probably another one of the major pitfalls of putting on your expert.
0: Uh, Jack, do you see any future trends or changes developing in this area?
1: Well, from the standpoint of changes favorable to defendants, We have seen certain statutes enacted in various jurisdictions that favor certain types of property owners, such as convenience store owners, where if they implement a certain number of security components, then the court will create a presumption that they're not liable and there will be a greater burden on the part of the plaintiff. Having said that, however, we see the trend continuing by and large in favor of plaintiffs. That is, the courts are becoming more liberal in the types of incidents that they uh, allow to establish foreseeability, the, the amount of time plaintiffs can go back. In terms of their research, we find a lot, a lot of courts shockingly permitting prior victims of crimes at the property to testify before a jury. It is In those situations, it is very difficult for defendants when they have to... Ha- when the face of a prior victim appears before a jury. Number one, they're very sympathetic. The prior incident becomes more real in the eyes of the jury, and it becomes very difficult for the defendant to overcome that. It's almost as if you have to defend multiple inadequate security claims in one case, because the prior victim would have been assaulted or been a victim at a different date than the time the incident occurred and the defendant would have to argue what they had in place on that day compared to the date at issue, and it it can be insurmountable. So we've had some serious concerns about that. I don't know of any cases that have gone up on appeal following a court's decision in that matter, but we do see that trend occurring with the courts. Additionally, um, we find plaintiffs focusing on elements of security other than human personnel. For example, of CCTV arguments are certainly more prevalent now than in the past. It seems as if jurors all believe that, uh, in light of today's technology, that property owners, especially larger property owners, should have closed-circuit TVs in place that have the ability to have facial recognition and have the ability to pick up license plates of the assailants that might be leaving the scene or license plates of the victim if the assailant is in the car with them. So these are concerns that we see and have to face because frequently our clients do not have CCTV or other types of surveillance technology in place. And, again, the juries seem to be persuaded by that argument from um, plaintiff's experts. Um, Again, by and large, we just see the trend being more liberal in favor of plaintiffs.
0: Okay, thanks very much, Jack, and thank you, Tony.
1: Sure. Thanks for having us.
0: Okay, we've just spoken with Jack Lux and Tony Patrillo from the law firm of Lux, Santanello, Perez, Petrillo, Golden, Jones in Florida. Special thanks to Brendan Noonan from our communications team and to our producer, Brian Cohen. And thank you all for joining us for the Insurance Law Podcast. To subscribe to this audio program, visit podcast.insuranceattorneysearch.com or go to online directories such as iTunes or Google or Yahoo's podcast directory. If you have any suggestions for a future topic regarding an insurance law case or issue, please email us at lawpodcast.ams.com. I'm John Zuba, joined by Brendan Noonan, and now this message.